Welcome to the Emergency Traffic Podcast. Hello, welcome to the Emergency Traffic Podcast, where we talk about firefighter and paramedic light of duty deaths to learn more from these tragic events and potentially happen, prevent them from happening in the future. I'm Paul, and I'm joined by my traditional co-hosts, Doug and Dirk. And we have a returning guest host, uh, Ms. Uh, Fire Chief or Assistant Chief, uh, Gordon Routley from the City of Montreal, who uh, was uh, intimately involved in the investigation of the incident that we're going to talk about this week that happened in 1995 in Seattle. Before we do that, we always do a little brief check-in. What's new with you guys, everybody? Uh, Dirk, what's new with you? Um, not much. Uh getting uh, set to teach a recruit class here starting next week it's going to be my first time teaching recruits so it's going to be going to be exciting and uh yeah kind of nervous too <laughs> it's 50 classes after my class so i thought it has a nice nice ring to it you know not quite 20 years later but almost 18 years later and 50 classes so so yeah i'm excited about that and I'm excited about today having uh, Chief Rodley here. It's, uh, it's great, great to hear his stories and uh, all the knowledge he has. So, absolutely. And Doug, how about you? Oh, I'm good. Uh, I'm on vacation from work as of a couple of days ago. So I, the way that I take vacation is by picking up a union shift. So I worked out on my first day of vacation. <laughs> and- <laughs> So I'll, I got a few shifts, other shifts lined up and whatever, but yeah, I went to the funeral for the RCMP guy yesterday in uh, Strathcona County there. Uh, excited about the Oilers and the playoffs, which is nice. The city is pretty vibrant when that's going on. And uh, for once, when you ask what you've been watching lately, they've been showing all the reruns of the show Third Watch on TV. So I've been watching all of those, reliving my teen years where I was loving it. So. It's a fun show to watch. My wife gets annoyed when I watch 10 seconds of an episode and know, tell her exactly how the rest of the episode goes. But, yeah, it's fun to watch it. I'm not, I'm not allowed to watch fire shows because my wife and daughter yeah. go, no, no, stop. You'll yeah. just get too excited, too frustrated. Well, it's not just fire. It's got EMS and police, so that helps. But it's, it's a fun right, show. I right. like it. Cool. Now, don't upset uh, Chief Routley with that whole Oilers comment, you know, because I believe the Habs are not in the playoff is what someone told me yesterday. Uh, yeah, that would be a good way of putting it, not in the playoffs. <laughs> <laughs> what's what's new with you since we spoke to you last year, Chief? Well, it's, it's been busy here uh, in Montreal. Um, they were we're currently on, uh, on flood watch because the Ottawa River is just on the the verge of uh, of flooding, so uh, one of one of my jobs is master of the dikes, so uh, so that it's it's holding just below the level where the dikes come into play, but for the last uh, several days I've been on you know I'm stand by for immediate response in case of rising water. Um, let's see, the week before that we had an ice storm and we had. A million people uh, without power for some as much as five days uh, because of the ice storm. Uh, that came on the heels of uh, seven fatality fire we had down in uh, the oh, old yes. area. Um, I, was, I was on the scene there for 14 days. 
Um, so, uh, you know, that was, uh, <laughs> that, that was another disruptor. And, uh, and theoretically I'm, I'm getting ready to go to FDIC next Wednesday. So, uh, yeah. So other, other than that, everything's pretty, uh, pretty much business as usual. And I, and I thought I was busy. <laughs> We're all jealous of you going to FDIC. Yes. All my all my Facebook memories keep popping up and it's my trip to FDIC on there and it makes me wish I was going back, but it's an expensive place to get to. Yeah, it sure is. Uh I mean I I got a hotel that's uh that's ten miles from the convention center. Um which which I managed to get for $150 a night versus $400 a night within walking distance. Yeah, they book up quick, too, downtown there. Yeah. It's a great but, show. Uh, everybody who's anybody is going to be there. So. Yeah. I guess we're nobody. Yeah. <laughs> we should go. I think I think we should take some money out of the emergency traffic petty cash fund. Yeah, start a GoFundMe, yeah. eh? Yeah, maybe yeah. our sponsor can people. kick some money in. <laughs> we can we can take one hundred percent of the money that's in there and go and do nothing. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I tell people I'm going to Indianapolis with thirty thousand of my closest friends. Yeah. Aha, perfect. I like it. Well, one day hopefully I can get back there. Yeah, me too. Got to get some vendors to pay for me to go. Yeah, probably pay yeah. to keep you away. Maybe, maybe John Witt will will invite me to go along. You know, with a hub fire. Truck. Well, with his expanding empire of fire trucks, he might have to hire you here soon. I know, I know. He yeah, he just yesterday. he just bought hub. I know that's crazy. Yeah. We'll see some feedback. Well, you know. But uh, I said to my cousin Denis, who who isn't joining us today, I said to him, I said when I was uh, working for both dealers and manufacturers, dealers always want to build trucks, and manufacturers always want to try to sell them, and they each think they can do the job better than the other, and it never works that way, right? There's a yeah. lot more complex to either one, uh, but you know, oh well, good good luck to them. Hub's a great brand, a good product, and uh, yeah, uh, the oldest fire truck company in Canada, so. Are they? They are, absolutely. Back in the 60s or 50s, they were started. Yep. So, continuous operation anyway. Yeah. 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 Tebow, Tebow name is older, but yeah. Yeah, the, cool. many, the many iterations of the Tebow name. Right, right. I saw I saw Carl. He was in Fort Saskatchewan. He'd come back for lunch. Did you come? Were you there too, Doug? Yeah, no. yeah I was there, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he came for lunch one day, uh, and I knew him back in the '80s, and he was here in 2019. We we had lunch one day, and yeah, it was kind of fun. Yep. I think his daughter's getting ready to take over the company. Yes, I believe you're right. Absolutely, which is cool. Uh, okay, well, this week's incident. Um, this week's incident is based on the U.S. Fire Administration report TR-77 by investigator. George or Gordon J. Routley. So I didn't even know that until I pulled the report up to do the episode. And I said, hey, that's our friend, Chief Routley. Let's ask if he wants to join us. And believe it or not, he said yes, which we're thrilled. Yeah. I'm always always happy to to talk about those reports that I did uh, mostly back in the 90s because the whole purpose of doing them is to share the, the information. 
And, uh, and I'm still enthusiastic about that. Although, you know, firefighter fatalities are always sad stories. Yeah. Um, you know, every one of them has valuable lessons. And, uh, you know, that's what it's all about is sharing those valuable lessons. Yeah, we appreciate that so much. That's exactly why we're here. And it's hard to do in Canada because we don't get the reports as publicly, although we're we're going to keep trying to get those. Did you do uh, Meridian 1 as well? Were you involved in that yeah. investigation? Yeah. Oh, we're going to have to do that one on a podcast. I can't remember what month it is, but uh, we'll, we'll pin that down. Yeah, that was in February. Okay, we missed it this year. Oh, well, next yeah. year we'll, we'll get you back. Okay, unfortunately, Dirk, there's so away. many to pick from, right? For every month. That's too bad. That's unfortunate that we have so many to pick from. Yeah. Okay, so I'll do the introduction here to the incident. Uh, four firefighters died when a floor collapsed without warning during a commercial building fire in downtown Seattle on January 5th, 1995. The cause of the fire was determined to be arson, and the suspect was apprehended and charged with four counts of homicide. Uh, the circumstances of this incident are similar to a number of other multiple fatality incidences uh, that have claimed the lives of more than 20 firefighters in recent memory across the nation. The similarities include fires in buildings that have access at different levels from different sites, resulting in confusing confusion over the level where companies are operating. There have also been uh, a number of situations where firefighters have been operating on the floor level uh, that appeared to be safe, not knowing that they were directly above a serious basement or lower level fire. These incidents result in sudden and unanticipated floor collapses, which either drop the firefighters into the fire area or expose them to an eruption of fire from the level below. Firefighters working on this floor believed they had already gained control of the situation and were not aware of the main body of fire uh, that was directly below them or that it was exposing a vulnerable element of the structural support system. This situation illustrates that multiple firefighter fatalities can occur at an incident where fire suppression operations are well-organized, well-managed, and well-executed with a strong emphasis on operational safety. One of the important lessons that come from this event should be valuable to both new and experienced fire officers. It shows how critical information can be missed during a complicated incident command operation, particularly when command officers are distracted by trying to perform too many functions without staff support. And that was written 28 years ago. Yeah. Unfortunately, we just did an episode from a few years ago, Rain Township, where the same thing happened. They went above the fire and, and, and the floor yeah. collapsed, right? Yeah. So that's why I thought that part was important to add to the script here, because here you wrote that 28 years ago, and we're still getting it today. Well, and how many times have we talked about uh, command officers distracted by trying to perform too many functions without support staff? Right. Wait, we talk about that still today too, right? So... Maybe people will listen to this and things will change and they'll learn from it. Little steps. Description of the structure. The Mary Ping Chinese Food Company occupied a building in Seattle's International District at 815 7th Avenue South, a few blocks from the King Dome. The company prepared frozen Chinese food dishes for distribution to grocery stores in the Seattle area and have been operating from the same location for more than 20 years. 
a bakery that supplied retail outlets in the Seattle area occupied part of the lower level, and an unused warehouse space was rented out as an evening practice area for a rock band. The building was constructed in stages that had been modified and had been modified several times over the history of more than 85 years. The occupancy is believed to have changed several times. The resulting structure was very different, difficult to interpret from the exterior. The history of the building was obtained through a number of records and plans dating back to 1909. However, many of the details are uncertain, particularly with respect to the dates and the sequence of modification. The structure at the time of the fire was an L shape with the two with two two-story sections along the north-south axis and a single-story wing extending to the west. The original section, which connects the north and west wings, is referred to as the center section in this report. When the original structure was built, it was a low-lying swampy area south of the downtown business district. During the 1920s, a major project was undertaken to raise the ground level in this part of Seattle. A large hill north of the downtown was removed and the fill was used to raise the level of the low-lying area to the south. The streets in this area were raised by 10 to 20 feet and the ground floors of many buildings became basements. I did a walking tour in Seattle when I was there and we were in this area and it was kind of cool that like they just said this used to be the second story and now it's the first story and we went in the basement and you could the windows was still there and like the front door was still just dirt outside of it. At the corner of 7th Avenue and Char 7th Avenue South and Charles Street, the new grade level of the streets was higher than the roofs of the single-story structures, which were now located in the low-lying areas between raised streets. The east wall of the original structure was reconstructed as a retaining wall and increased in height by approximately 5 feet to hold back the fill that was used to raise the level of 7th Avenue South. The south wall of this section was partially buried covering several window openings. The original ground floor level became a windowless basement, accessible only through the north and west wings. The hidden flaw in the structure was a support for the ends of the new floor joists along the north wall. The original roof was supported by a ledge that was incorporated in, in the brick wall. Because the new floor was four to five feet higher than the roof, a wood frame pony wall was fabricated from two by four inch wood members and erected on top of the ledge to support the ends of the new floor joists. This assembly did not have the inherent fire resistance of the more massive wood members and could be expected to fail rapidly under fire conditions. The failure of this assembly would release the ends of the floor joists and result in a southern, sudden floor collapse. The remainder of the basement in the center section was used for storage by the Mary Payne Company and the family that owned it. The access to this room was through a sliding fire door from the loading dock. A second access to this room was available through a narrow door in the north wing near the west wall. This door was seldom used because of its difficult access. To compensate in the difference in floor levels, there were steep stairs on both sides of the narrow opening. The storage room, which was 30 feet wide, 60 feet deep, and 20 feet high, was heavily loaded with combustible products. There, were, there was no ceiling in the storage room. The underside of the floor deck and the structure that supported it were unprotected in this room. 
including the vulnerable pony wall. The room had no windows, only two doors, and three brick walls. The partition between the storage room and the bakery was wood construction, and there was a wood frame section along the upper part of the west wall, between the top of the brick wall and the underside of the floor deck. Any, anything to add, Chief? Like, concerning yeah, yeah, the building? It's pretty hard to, to visualize the, the building from a, from a verbal description. But, um, you know, it, it, it was a really tricky building. You have to imagine a, a two-story section running north and south with a one-story projection uh, running to the west. Uh, but with the levels um, along the two-story part, um, only the, the upper floor was visible from the street. So if you're on 7th Street South, you were looking at, you know, what, what looked like a one-story building, but there was another full level below that was exposed on the backside. If you went around to the backside, you were looking at another one-story building that projected out. But beyond, behind it was a two-story building. So you really had to do a 360 to get a good size up. If you didn't have a pre-fire plan or, or air photos or something to tell you, the only way to get an appreciation of the building was to do a 360. And, uh, and one of the things that came out in the report was that, that nobody got the 360 view. Um, everybody was, was looking from, you know, from one side or the other side or the other side, and everybody had a different appreciation of of what they were looking at and where they were. Cool. Thank you for that. That's great. That explains it wonderfully, better than better than, than we can, because you were there. The uh, back in '95. This is great. Uh, the investigation about the event, the arson. So several weeks before the fire occurred arson investigators received information that an attempt would be made to burn this building during a specific time period. Surveillance was conducted for the period indicated in the former, uh, by the informer and the first alarm companies were advised to be aware of potential for arson at this location. That didn't prompt a pre-plan? Uh, no, actually, there's, there's a bit of a story there. Um, the... It was the son of the owners was the arsonist who would have been set to inherit the business, but he didn't want to inherit the business. Um, and he was, uh, yeah, he was an interesting character. It was one of his four ex-wives who, uh, who squealed on him <laughs> because she, she worked for the frozen food company, worked for his parents, and he bragged to her that he was going to burn the place down to collect the insurance money. He even said that he was going to start the fire in the storeroom. And he asked her to make sure that his parents weren't going to be there when he was going to do it. And he actually specified the weekend that he was going to do it. But he was delayed two weeks. So the fire occurred two weeks after the, the tip. Uh, but it, the fire ex occurred exactly as... As the tip had predicted, fire started in the storeroom. So when they got the tip, the you know it it worked its way to the Seattle 
fire investigations team. And they said, well, you know, we kind of got this guy cold. (laughs) We know everything about it. So we'll stake the place out and we'll we'll tip off the first due units that there's likely to be a fire there. But we'll tell them, don't don't go there and look around because that'll be too obvious. So just beware. Um, well, then what happened? The fire was delayed by a couple of weeks. Um, they staked it out for the, the time period and a little bit longer. And then they said, well, I guess it was a bad tip. And, you know, 10 days later, the fire occurred exactly as predicted. <laughs> wow. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, the investigation, of course, determined the fire was deliberately started in the basement storage room. The, uh, the fire was set in the storage room shortly before 1900 hours on the uh, Thursday, January 5th, 1995. Why are we doing this in April or May? Somehow I thought it was a May fire. Oh, great. Crash it. We won't do it. No. Oh, well. Uh, it quickly grew to major proportions within the storage room and burned through the wood frame position. I wrote this. I did the script and missed that. Uh, through the wood frame partition into the area occupied by the bakery. It also burned through the metal clad wood frame section that covered the gap in the west wall between the top of the brick and the underside of the upper floor deck. The fire then lapped up the exterior of the metal covered wall above the roof of the west wing. First call came in a couple minutes later from a member of the band because remember part of that building was a recording area for a band or a, a practice area. Smoke was coming into the practice area from the adjoining section of the building. This was quickly followed by other callers reporting a working structure fire in the area. A full first alarm consisting of five engines, two ladders, one ambulance, BLS, one ambulance, ALS, an air supply unit, and two command officers was dispatched a moment later. Companies approached the scene, saw a large column of smoke in the air. Uh, the wind was calm. Smoke column was rising almost vertically above the fire. The first arriving company, Engine 10, responded to the intersection of Maynard and Dearborn and proceeded south on Maynard to South Charles Street. From this vantage point, a heavy volume of fire could be seen above the roof of the west wing of the building. The fire appeared to be burning against the exterior of the rear wall, west wall of the center section that was a two-story part and threatening to penetrate into the structure. Engine test 10 passed to the south of the building along South Charles Street. Some crew members noted the main body of fire appeared to be coming from the small shed that extended out from the wall above the roof of the west wing. This was a lunchroom that had been added to the rear of the upper level. They believed the fire could be coming from this shed and extended into the main structure. Engine 10 proceeded around the east side, which was the front of the building. The initial actions were Engine 10 reported on the scene while involved building fire, assumed command at uh, 1907, so five minutes after the initial discovery. The uh, lieutenant's report included that uh, Engine 10 would be laying an inch and a half manifold. So that's probably like uh, two and a half and a couple of Y at a Y and two inch and a half, so I'm guessing. Yeah, in Seattle, what they pulled was it was either a three or a three and a half. Right. to a manifold, and they could take four inch and three-quarter lines off the manifold. Okay, thanks. Uh, 
to the hydrant northeast corner of Seventh uh, Avenue South and St. Charles Street, South Charles Street, extended the three-inch line to the manifold, which was placed at the southwest corner. Several attack lines can be taken from the manifold. Thanks, Chief. Uh, ladder one followed engine ten into the scene and spotted uh, on the east side of the building near the midpoint. The lieutenant in charge of ladder one conferred with the lieutenant of engine ten while the crew initiated forcible entry. The crew then was directed to raise ground ladders and proceed to the roof to perform vertical ventilation. The acting deputy chief, who was assigned as a shift commander of Battalion 1, arrived a minute later behind Engine 10. Battalion 1 was positioned on the South Charles Street near the rear driveway entrance to establish a command post. The acting deputy chief walked to the intersection to confer with the lieutenant of Engine 10 while his aide set up the command post. He agreed with the lieutenant's assessment of the situation and approved, uh, approved the attack plan, which was an interior attack from the east to west to keep the exterior fire from extending into the building. He announced that he would be assuming command of the fire, the Charles Street side. His initial report, fire in a two-story, so he did know it was a two-story. 50 by 80 foot building. Engine 5 will be operating on the exterior only from the rear. Engine 10 will be attacking through the interior from the opposite side. Battalion 1 will be Charles Command. Lieutenant of Engine 10 was designated as Division Bravo and assigned to supervise the interior companies, the companies on the east side of the fire, which was the two-story side, the east side, right? Apparently, the incident commander then assigned engine five to the west side with specific instructions, prevent exterior spread of the fire, but do not make a direct attack from the west because the interior crews will be working from the east to the west. Engine five placed their manifold at the west driveway and stretched a three inch line to the hydrant at the southwest corner uh, of uh, Charles Street and South Seventh uh, Avenue. Engine 13 assigned to work with Engine 10 on the interior from the east side. Lieutenant of Engine 10 assigned two of his crew to work under Lieutenant from Engine 13 while he continued to direct operations from the outside. Two inch and three quarter attack lines were advanced through the roll up door to the south side of the half of the building, one by Engine 13, one by Engine 10. Engine 2 was assigned to work with Engine 5 on the opposite side, the west side. Uh, and the engine captain in charge of engine two was designated as division charlie and assigned to supervise the companies on the west side of the building battalion five arrived and was assigned to relieve the lieutenant of engine 10 as division bravo the lieutenant and another of loving this all this ics you know, divisions and stuff that's good i like it i teach ics all the time so i can come teach it in french for you guys uh there chief yeah, yeah, well, yeah. It, it's very confusing in my head because I, you know, I I know all the ICS terminology, and you know, in Quebec we use a derivation of it, but not exactly the same, but in French. So, yeah. Oh, the translated terms that ICS Canada has approved are crazy for some of yep. the terms in ICS, like gestionnaire uh, for a section chief yeah. and, uh, and uh, supervisor for a director. And Oh, it's crazy. Anyway, yeah. tangent. Uh, let's see. The uh, Engine 36 reported to command was assigned to report to Division B. They're directed to take another attack line through a door on the north half of the building to check for extension. Ladder 3 approached from the east on Dearborn and viewed the fire from the north. The captain decided to place a ladder truck in the parking lot to the north of the building and ladder the north wing. Crew then went to the roof with ventilation equipment. The deployment of first alarm companies 
the incident commander requested two additional engine companies and one more ladder company which re to respond uh, and directed incoming Unix to establish a base uh, or a staging area. That's uh, Charleston Maynard. Four minutes later, he upgraded to a full second alarm. So he thought things were going bad. The first two attack lines were advanced into the building by crews uh, 10 and 13. They found the interior to be hot and heavily charged with smoke, but did not encounter any major interior fire involvement. A few spot fires were found immediately knocked down with bursts of water from the hose lines. Most of the spot fires were reported to be near the floor level. Here's a clue. The crew advancing the third line encountered similar conditions as they worked through the interior. One spot fire was found near the floor level in an office area. Others were found towards the rear. Some fire was also observed and extinguished on the underside of the roof. The crews were working in zero visibility conditions and had to advance very slowly, moving around equipment and stored materials inside the building. They reported that the interior temperatures were hot enough to keep them crouched down, but not hot enough to cause unusual concern. The three attack teams used up their air supplies, rotated out to change cylinders. The attack lines were back to the doorway where they were picked up by fresh teams that had already exchanged their cylinders. Each team entering or leaving reported to Battalion Chief 5, who was Bravo accountability for Bravo Division. Engine 36 worked their way to the north wing from the east to west and encountered only a small spot fire. It was uh, near a small breach in a firewall where the fire had communicated through from the basement. They reported to Division Bravo that there was no evidence of additional fire involvement at the North Wing at that time. Over to the west side, which I think was Charlie, uh, Engine 5 forced entry to the bakery through the rear door, found no fire in the area. No smoke or heat. Everling appeared to be normal. The crew had raised a ladder to the roof of the west wing and took an inch and three quarter line up to the top of the ladder. They did not go onto the roof because of a downed power line that was in their path. The hose line was operated from the ladders to knock down the fire on the exterior west wall. Captain of Engine 2 was assigned as Division Charlie. He directed his crew to advance a backup line for Engine 5 and then to take another hand line around the west wing and into the, into the north wing. They entered through the doors on the lower level of the north wing and found the area charged with smoke but no fire or elevated temperatures. Ladder 1 went to the roof, found fire lapping over and onto the roof from the west side. They initially selected a point to open the roof on the west side of the building, but the heat was so intense they had to back away from before the hole was cut. They decided to move back several feet to the east and began a north-south trench cut to reduce the risk of interior fire spread from west to east. They also asked Bravo Division to send up a hose line to protect them and to control any fire spread of, on the roof and two members of Aid 5, a BLS ambulance, were sent to the roof with an additional hose line. Ladder 1 was joined on the roof by the crew from Ladder 3. Both crews worked to trench to do the trench cut. Progress on this cut was slow because of the multiple layers of roof boards, one on top of another and below the, the roof joists. They had to cut the roof covering with a chainsaw, strip away the top layer, and then reach down between the joists with a chainsaw to make a second cut through the lower level boards. They finally to remove the lower boards to ventilate the interior. So it sounds like two roofs really on top of each other. Yeah. And it's, you know, when you put all that together, um, yeah, it, it's one of those puzzles for an incident commander because you got to figure the guys who are, who are the main attack teams are coming in from the east side on what appears to what appears to be the ground floor level to them, but it's really 
the upper level. And there's a, a you know, there was fire visible coming in, but the, the visible fire on the outside of the building was knocked down pretty fast. But there's a, a sizable thermal column coming from this building. So there's a, a significant fire and they go in on the, uh, you know, the, the level where they entered into a big space, which is hot, but not blistering hot and full of smoke. And they're encountering little bits of fire, these you know, little bits of fire around the floor here and there, but not enough that, that they have the feeling that they're getting to the fire. The guys who are on the roof are busy opening the roof and they're having a heck of a time because there are two solid roofs on the building. It takes quite a while. And then when they do get it open, they get smoke, but it's obviously they're not venting the fire directly. They're, you know, what, what they're getting is smoke that's worked its way through the building, but they're not getting the fire. So everybody's stumped. The guys on the roof are trying to figure out what's going on. The guys who are inside are looking around saying, okay, the, the main body of fire has to be somewhere. And they're not realizing that they're standing on a concrete floor and the fire is right under their feet. Meanwhile, engine two comes all the way around the building and they come in a side door into a corridor and they find the door that leads into the fire room. And they call and they say, we're on the fire. We've got a hose line here. And the incident commander not realizing that they're on a different level, says, don't attack from west to east because the attack is coming from east to west. So just stand by, which sets the scene for what happened. Yeah, there's a thing in the th in the notes here about, you know, uh, command actually got out to look around and goes, no, 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 don't don't go in, you know. Yeah. Uh, but he didn't go all the way around. He was just conferring with the crews to make sure where they were and where they were attacking. Yeah. The, uh, I spent a lot of time with this, the, the chief of safety for Seattle, Stuart Rose at the time, who was on the scene. And he said, when he got there, he had a look inside and then he went up on the roof and he saw what was going up on, going on on the roof. And he said, well, you know, this isn't it. So he came down and he, he started to do a 360. He did a 270. He went in the bakery from the back and said, okay, well, okay, there's smoke here, but this isn't the fire. And when he was there, somebody called him and said, you need to come up, come back up on the roof. So instead of completing the 360, he went back the way he came. And before he got back is when the collapse occurred. If he'd gone, if he'd gone around one more corner, he would have, he would have seen where the fire was. Right, which is probably what engine engine five was or two was seeing, but they were told, don't don't go in because the guys are pushing it towards you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the guys from engine two. When I talked to them, they said, I mean, we opened the door and the fire is right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So that's what it says. Basement fire discovered here in the report. The crew of Engine 2, who had been assigned to look for additional areas where the fire could extend to the north and west, they located an opening on the north wall, west wing, that provided access to the interior loading dock. 
It was an old doorway that had been covered over, but the covering was loose. They advanced their line through the opening and used a stepladder that happened to be there to drop down into the loading dock. Oh my goodness. When they reached the loading dock, they found the sliding fire door leading to the storage room partially open. The interior of the storage room was fully involved in fire. However, no smoke or flames were coming out of the doorway. So, oh, they're going somewhere else. Yeah. The large fire was drawing air in through this opening. The crew advised the captain, who is the division, uh, Charlie Division uh, Chief, uh, of this discovery and discussed the possibility of launching an attack into the fire from the west side. They were where the attack plan had already been defined east to west. Anyway, uh, fo uh, the following the plan, they took positions to hold the fire at the loading dock, expect and in the anticipation of an interior attack coming towards them. The clue, this should have been the, the, the smoke, right? <laughs> They're obviously not getting it yeah. up. Yeah, but, you know, you got to, it's one of those puzzles. You got to figure out all the pieces. And in retrospect, man, it's, it all makes sense when you have sure. to pieces together. Yeah, sitting here comfy in our desks. Yeah. It says battalion chief arrived, reported to command. He's briefed on the attack plan, the objectives. Uh, he was then assigned to relieve Captain of uh, Engine 2 as Division Charlie. He went to the west side, briefed on the situation, took charge of the division. About 1930 hours, it was recognized that the division's designations were incorrect. The east side of the fire was re designated as Division Charlie, and the west side was designated as Division Bravo. Here's your safety officer, uh, Dirk, if you want to. I don't know if it says any more than what the chief uh, told us. Yeah, I was just going to say this would be just... Uh, redundant? Uh, it would be really redundant because, yeah, the okay. safety officer. But uh, what I was going to mention is, like, this all sounds really well organized. 1995... I don't know any department that had a safety chief going around. Uh, they had all the division officers and apparently good communication as well. So, like, I, I'm surprised because for '95, this is this is really well organized. They had they had all the ICS boxes checked. I mean, as as far as structure, everything was there. The only thing is the fire was was screwing with them. The, they you know they couldn't. They couldn't pin down where the fire was because of this, you know, confusion over the levels. And the guys from the guys from Engine Two were right there. They, you know, they they were ready to blast the fire. But the incident commander thought that they would be pushing back against the main attack. Yep, yep. Well, in this, the Oregon, Washington State, in the late eighties and nineties. Uh, they, those were areas of excellence in firefighting in those days. That's where that uh, the video, American Heat and those video series all came from that area. And uh, they did some leadership stuff there, uh, like the whole 1001. That was really innovative area in those days. Yeah. The assistant chief of operations. So the acting assistant fire chief in charge of operations had also responded from home on the initial report of a working structure fire in the International District. He approached from the north and parked his car northeast of the fire. From the corner, he noted a strong thermal column rising from the rear portion of the structure. When he reached the building and looked in, looked in through the doors from the east side, he noted that the interior was heavily charged with smoke but not hot. 
The inconsistency of these ob observations caused him to believe that there must be a significant fire burning somewhere in the structure, but that it must have been in a different part of the building or in a concealed space. He asked the division Bravo chief if the building had a basement and received a negative reply. This caused him to suspect a cockloft fire. He then proceeded to the command post where he discussed his concerns about a concealed space fire with the incident commander. The incident commander had not received a report from the roof and was not aware of the progress that was being made on vertical ventilation. The acting assistant chief recommended calling for a third alarm anticipating an extended operation and told the incident commander that he wanted to make a full personal reconnaissance survey before assuming command of the incident. The third alarm was requested at, 13, at 1932 hours. The acting assistant chief of operations then encountered the deputy chief of training and safety who reported that there was no evidence of fire in the lower level and that he had, had seen no major problems on the west side of the fire. The two of them returned to the east side and went to the roof to evaluate conditions, looking particularly for evidence of a cockloft fire. On the rooftop, they noted that a moderate amount of smoke was coming from the vents. This observation was inconclusive with respect to their suspicion that there could be a significant fire in the cockloft or in some other concealed space. They recognized that the additional ventilation would be needed in, to, lo to locate a concealed space fire or confirm that there was none. The acting assistant chief contacted the incident commander at 1936 hours to notify him of the need to assign a division supervisor to the roof. The captain of Ladder 3 was assigned this responsibility, pending the assignment of a command officer. And we should clarify for all of our non-firefighter listeners that the cockloft is the space in a building between the ceiling and the roof. Kind of like the attic. But not usually not as big as an attic, right? Like a right. small a flat the roof structure, yeah. 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 Chief Routley's got lots of them down in Montreal there probably. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everywhere. Yeah, so we don't call them cocklofts in Montreal. We call them entre trois. Entre trois. Be between the roof. Yeah. Nice, nice. The uh, At this time, three interior lines were being operated by engines 10, 13, and ladder 7. The lieutenant and firefighters from engine 13 were operated in the northwest corner of the, in the lunchroom. Uh, engine 10 was working in the north half of the ground floor. And uh, Ladder 7 was near the middle of the large space. All crews were in dense smoke, but the atmosphere was cool and there was no visible fire. Engine 10 and his partner briefly encountered the crew of Ladder 7 and disappeared back into the smoke. Seconds later, the building rumbled and flames erupted from the basement as the floor began to collapse. It appears that the pony wall failed, dropping the ends of the floor joists. Seconds Sections of wood and concrete floor hinge, hinge down into the basement. The flames coming from the basement fled across the, uh, spread across the underside of the roof and the contents of the ground floor began to ignite in rapid flashover sequence. Two firefighters from 13 were in the lunchroom and heard the lieutenant shout, let's get out of here as the floor began to drop. Two firefighters were able to get through the hole in the wall and onto the roof of the west wing. Lieutenant and the other firefighter are believed to have fallen in the basement as one of the first sections dropped. 
Engine 10 lieutenant and his partner became separated as the floor collapsed. The firefighter was able to make his way back to the door and out while the lieutenant dropped into the basement. The crew of Ladder 7 at first believed the ceiling must have collapsed as flames spread across the whole open area over their heads. The lieutenant opened the nozzle, attempting to cool the overhead, but the water stream immediately turned to steam. The four crew members began to follow their line back towards the door single file as intense heat radiated down on them. They did not realize that the floor was collapsing until they encountered flames coming up through a large opening, almost directly in their path to the doorway. Two of the firefighters and their lieutenant managed to scramble to the door and outside, passing within feet of the opening. As they stretched, uh, reached the exterior, they realized that the third firefighter was no longer with them. The missing firefighter had been first in line as they were trying to find their way out, and he fell either into a hole or dropped into the basement as a floor section collapsed under him. All of the seven firefighters who escaped were burned. The majority of the burns were to their necks and ears. The ladder, lieutenant of Ladder 7 had additional burns to his wrists and one hand. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I, I remember clearly talking to the lieutenant of, uh, of Ladder 7 and, you know, talking about them crawling out in single file and, and crawling past this hole in the floor where the fire was coming up and then getting, getting to the street and realizing that he only had two firefighters with him instead of three. They lost one. Uh, you know, I just, I really felt for him at that point. Yeah, yeah. That just That's got to be one of the worst feelings to have as a fire officer. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they they just made it themselves. But when you, you know, you, you crawl, crawl out, getting burned as you crawl out, and when you get out, you realize you're missing somebody. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's bad. <laughs> that's what we're going to talk about the accountability here in this incident. So it was evident within seconds that something was going wrong. Uh, however, personnel outside the building were not immediately sure what was happening. Hot, heavy smoke and some flames began to issue from the uh, doors and out through the hole in the roof. On the east side of the building, firefighters began to scramble out the door within their protective clothing, smoking. Um, it took almost a full minute before Lieutenant of Ladder 7, the last to escape, came out of the building. On the west side, the two firefighters from Engine 13 suddenly appeared at the top of the ladder, having crossed the roof of the west wing, reporting that their lieutenant and another firefighter were missing. The radio came alive with messages of abandoning the building, and the evacuation tones were sounded by the incident commander. The communication center reported that an emergency notification system system was being received from one portable radio, then from a second radio. As soon as he could get outside and account for his crew, the lieutenant of Ladder 7 transmitted a message that one of his crew members was missing. It took only a few minutes to account for all of the crew and crew members and to confirm the identities and last known locations of the four missing personnel. Crews outside the building were quickly organized to operate streams into the opening in hopes to protect the firefighters who believed at that point to have fallen into the basement. Search and rescue plans were developed based on the last known location. Chief, you want to add anything to this? Yeah, I, you know, I, I said a few minutes ago that, that they were very well organized as far as ICS. 
their accountability was good. They had it all sectored. Everything, you know, everything was by the book. Um, they just they just got fooled by the fire, and you know, it, it says something that that you could be perfectly organized and still lose. Um, and you know, I I've thought of this one. I can't remember how many times since then. Uh, and when I was doing the analysis, it made me think of other fires where you're there and you can't quite figure out what's going on. You can't you can't figure out the building. You know you've got a, a significant fire somewhere, but it's not here. It's not here. It's not here. Where is it? Um, and the importance of reconnaissance just jumps right out. The importance of the 360, of somebody quickly figuring out how this building is laid out and how it all goes together. Of course, a pre-fire plan or you know, pre-fire reconnaissance visits are, are so valuable uh, in a situation like that. But you know, if you have them, great. But if you don't have them, somebody has got to go and, and look and see. And it, it, one of the pitfalls we have is the incident commander is in one position and he's saying, OK, I'm asking I'm going to ask one sector what what he sees. and I'm going to ask another sector what he sees and I'm going to ask another sector what he sees. And they all report what they see. But they're all looking at, you know, they're, they're looking at the same building from different perspectives and de- seeing different things. And you know, somebody has got to put it all together. And that's, God, that's, I think, the biggest lesson from this one. I think it'd be tough. I think it'd be tough, too, for the crews that are inside when, like, your your different senses you're experiencing aren't telling you the same thing, right? Like, you you know you're in a whole bunch of smoke. You're seeing smoke all around, but you're not feeling any heat. Yeah, I think that yeah. like you're, it would screw with your mind where you're thinking like, this should be hot. Why isn't this hot? Like I'm covered in smoke, or 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 then, it should be like I'm not hot. I should be able to see. Why can't I see? Like when when they're not matching up and telling you the same thing, I think that would be a real screw with your mind situation. Especially when you go in and you use up an air cylinder, and you're, you know, you're in on the ground floor and you're not seeing any major fire, but you're in smoke. You come out to change cylinders and you look at the building and there's this still this thermal column and saying, OK, this doesn't compute. What's you know, what's wrong here? And, and the thermal column is saying the fire is in the basement, <laughs> but you don't know there is a basement. Red flag, red yeah. flag, <laughs> but there's no basement. Hang on a minute. What? Yeah. Yeah. Some, something I've, I've wondered reading this is being in 95, how, uh, did they have ticks with them? Did every crew have a tick? Did No. Because no. I was thinking like, if you're in smoke, that's not hot. At least if you can look around with a tick, you might see like, one doorway is a little warmer and maybe that's the stairs downstairs. You know what I mean? It might give yeah, you that would, some kind of clue as to what's going on. But if you don't have one. Well, with a tick, what they would have seen was 
the floor was hot. Floor was hot, yeah. And, and yeah. everywhere there was a crack in the floor, you would see a heat line. Sure. Because mm-hmm. the concrete uh-huh. floor would have masked the fire a lot, right? You wouldn't have. Yeah. You wouldn't have just felt yeah. it standing there, probably. Yeah. And talking to, to the surviving guys, they said, yeah, we had a little pile of stuff on fire on the floor over here yeah. and another little pile of stuff on fire on the floor over there. And we had some smoke seeping out over here. I said, yeah, because the fire's in the basement. But they didn't feel it. <laughs> but they didn't know here. there was a basement. Yeah, if you don't know there is a basement, your brain doesn't think that's a possibility, right? You just think, oh, there's a yeah. fire here, fire there. and and so yeah. So is this fire the case? For a drone for command? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, New York used them this week for the parkade to fly around to get a better view of, of the of where the collapse was and stuff. Yeah. Know, but, but still, they're not that popular in the fire service for immediate deployment by command or yeah. like, I like the tethered. You have a tethered drone. It wouldn't show yeah. you that because you might not see the other side. You'd need one that flies around. But yeah. Well, the tethered, you know, with a tethered drone, you get it up there and you see what's going on on the roof. You see what the guys on the roof are doing. Do you and guys you see, have any? Yeah, we have, we, we have one in Montreal. We've just started using it. So but, for uh, immediate, immediate deployment, like a chief right away tonight. Yeah. Right? No, that, yeah. I want one. I want yeah. one real bad. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, photo kite, photo kite. And the other one, uh, LS air, it's a French company. They make a yeah. tethered drone. They use it at races and stuff. Yeah, we have one, but we don't have anybody who's 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 rapid response to put it in operation. Uh, usually, it, you know, it's me coming on the third alarm. That, uh, that yeah, but but when we need it is right at the beginning, like those first ten or fifteen minutes, and 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 to have a drone that can fly around. Our police uh, department have, you know, we're a little jealous because they have a couple of. Uh, sophisticated drones, and they have drone pilots on duty on every shift. Yeah, yeah. Well, for the accident investigations and the yeah. and the suspected shooters and stuff, right? Yeah, well, I had them out for the for doing the dike patrol yesterday. Okay. And, you know, I say, give me a look around here, and it's like in three minutes they can do a, a whole sector and see everything that's going on. We have a, emergency management. I didn't. I didn't know there was dro- uh, dikes in Montreal, like for the for water for flooding. I didn't even know oh, they were there. Oh, these are <laughs> these are temporaries. Oh, these okay. Are, yeah, they were sandbags and oh, okay, and inflatable dikes and yep, yep, and stuff like that. Yeah. Sorry, you know, I know out west here. There, I don't know if there's any drones, but I know some places the police helicopter can link up with the mobile command unit and have the fire radio in the police helicopter to be able to talk to. But even then, like the mobile command unit isn't there right off the bat, right? It's, I mean, neither is the yeah. drone in New York city, but it's. Uh, it, yeah. In New York, in New York city, they, you know, they have the, the command tactical unit. Yeah. It's on duty all the time. Yeah. It's got a couple of drones and a couple of people dedicated to it. So it's on the way. Yeah. It you just might feel, take an hour <laughs> Depending on what yeah. part of New York City you're in, but, yeah, at yeah. the time of day, yeah. But uh, you know, I think you know, in, in coming years, we're going to get used to using them, and you know, you, to get that 360. We've got a lot of places in Montreal where you know, there's no easy way to get to the back of the building to have a look. Mm-hmm. You know, there are 
buildings are attached all the way around the block. You know, you've got a drone fly it up there and say, oh, okay, now I see what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's go back to the uh, rescue attempts here in this incident um, after the roof, uh, the uh, floor collapsed there. So the acting assistant chief of operations assumed command of the incident and assigned an acting deputy chief to manage the operations section. Uh, the fourth and fifth alarm were transmitted for additional resources and four additional medic units were requested. Two rescue branches were established, one on the east side to conduct rescue operations on the upper level and one on the west side to make a similar effort in the lower level. The floor collapse was determined to involve only the section immediately south of the interior firewall. So there was a possibility that some of the missing firefighters could still be on the upper level. After evaluating structural conditions, crews were reassigned to the roof to provide additional vertical ventilation. The crews upstairs had very little success penetrating the structure due to the intense heat. However, the crews in the basement made several entries, including some deep penetration into the rubble. With the opening in the floors above and in the roof, the heat and smoke were venting and the rescue teams were able to work their way into the rubble. Engine companies 2 and 25 and ladder 10 advanced hose lines into the storage area and attempted to move some of the debris but they were unable to get through the combination of burning content and material that had fallen into the basement. Uh, they then went in through the bakery area, which also become involved in the fire and uh, worked their way all the way to the east wall. At different times, they believed they had heard pass units sounding or SCBA low pressure alarms, but they were unsuccessful in locating any of the missing personnel. The rescue attempts involved a very significant personal risk to the rescuers. However, they were well organized and very conscious of conditions. It was later determined that the rescuers came within a few feet of two of the victims, but they could not be located in the rubble and probably could not have been saved at that point. The rescue efforts were continued when it was determined that the risk of additional structure collapse was imminent. At this point, victims had been missing for over an hour and any hopes of finding them alive had been giving up. Uh, all personnel were withdrawn from the structure uh, for a second time and defensive operations were conducted using massive streams to control the fire. Body recovery efforts were initiated the next morning in coordination with an intensive fire cause investigation. The bodies were believed to be in the storage room, which was also the suspected area of origin. The situation, this situation necessitated a very slow and deliberate removal of the debris to recover and document the evidence. While also searching for the bodies, the structure had to be partially demolished and parts had to be braced before entry could be made. Two bodies were recovered during the first day one on the second day, and the last body was not located until the third evening, 72 hours after the fire was reported. All firefighters are believed to have died from asphyxiation after running out of air or losing integrity of their SCBAs when they fell. Two were incapacitated and died where they fell, while two had managed to move a considerable distance from the point where they are believed to have fallen into the basement. 
tragic. All four firefighters were equipped with pass devices and all four also had portable radios. Emergency buttons on two of the radios had been activated and two of the pass devices had also been activated. The other two pass devices were found with the switches in the off position. That's where it started with that. Uh, then they started doing the tethered ones that you couldn't get out of the truck without the little tether to activate it was the result of some of these calls. Yeah. The sudden floor collapse can be attributed to the unusual construction details, which would have been extremely difficult to anticipate or predict. A visual examination of the major structural elements of the buildings would have suggested that they had fire endurance characteristics similar to heavy timber. The pony wall was an undetected weak link in the structural system. There was no pre-fire plan for the building. Pre-fire plan is a company level responsibility in Seattle and company offers determine, officers determine the need to prepare pre-fire plans and conduct familiarization tours of individual properties in their areas. This building had not been identified as requiring a plan because it had not been recognized as an unusually complex or dangerous occupancy. Most of them probably didn't know it was two stories. Yeah, and, and you know, there, there are a lot of old complex buildings in that area, and yeah. driving by, you wouldn't have picked this one out. It wasn't, it wasn't special until it was on fire. Yep, yep. Incident Command, we talked about it already, Seattle uses Incident Command, uh, was applied in a standard and consistent manager from the outset of operations. It can be described as very well organized and managed by the book, like you said, Chief. Hey, to your words, you repeated there. No, you wrote this. Uh, you know, the, scanning down here, the problem was noted in the flow of information and progress reports back to Incident Commander. The number of functions that were assigned to division supervisors and the impact these have had on the ability to actually supervise and monitor tactical uh, operations. Um, I'm just going to skip through here. Heavy timber. You don't need to read all that. Maybe I kind of should have edited this a little more. Go ahead, Dirk. I got a question for the chief there. So you think in the pre-incident plan that on the company level that anybody would have identified this pony wall as a problem? I, I from personal experience, I, I'd say probably not because I'm not yeah. I'm not a search yeah. engineer. <laughs> you would have had to have a really good eye to pick it up. You know, during a pre-fire plan, if somebody happened to. <laughs> To be in the right place and look up and say, "Hey, how come that that part of the floor is held up by two by fours, and the rest of it's held up by, you know, eight by twelves? Uh, <laughs> um, but, but I think the key would have been just to understand the spaces and not to be fooled to think you were in a one-story building when you were in a two-story building. Um, you know that that would have been it. But to understand the layout. And the, the complexity, the, the fact that you're on a concrete floor that's been poured on top of an old wooden floor. Um, you know, that, that's one of the, the things that's caught us several times where you have, you know, a concrete floor. When you're standing on a concrete floor, you kind of have the feeling you're on something really solid, but it's yeah. being held up by a wooden structure. Yeah. Talks here about, uh, you know, this incident you wrote here, Chief, the, as the incident progressed, the attack plan appeared to be working. 
the visible fire was controlled and there were no reports of significant interior involvement, except for that thermal column, which they were seeing. The fire in the basement had been located, but it was not reported back to incident command. This was a critical information that could have changed the risk analysis and caused them to evaluate the interior crews before the floor had collapsed. But the significance of the information was not recognized an incident commander. So maybe it wasn't incident command that told those two crews not to, uh, or they, he thought they were on the same floor. That's why he yeah. didn't realize it was in the basement. Yeah. 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 And the, the division, uh, officer, the, the, the battalion chief who came in with engine two, had just arrived, um, you know, and he didn't. He didn't have the information about who was where. All he knew was that the attack was coming from from east to west. Um, so it's all those it's all those bits of information that you know that are tricky to assemble. Um, the the chief who was at the door on the east side, who who had the the upper level, I guess we would say the upper level division of the upper level sector was at the doorway and he had great accountability over the crews that were inside, but he hadn't gone in and, and didn't have a feel for the fire or the, the heat and smoke conditions inside. He had perfect accountability, but he didn't know what was going on with the fire. And the crews were coming in and going out and, you know, telling him, bits and pieces, but it didn't have the whole picture. I mean, it's just, it's fascinating when you talk to everybody after the fact and say, okay, what did you know? And everybody knew a little bit, but nobody had the whole picture. Yeah. And I know I've, I've, I know someone like uh, blue card, I think teaches the, the division commanders must be uh, in the same PPE that the firefighters are so that they can access the area to get that feedback, that immediate feedback of where they're working, which, yeah. you know, in this case, maybe that didn't happen. And of course the perception of the floors, it was the same in that San Francisco house where the two firefighters died. Same thing. They had no idea there was another floor. Same, yeah. in, you know, so many of these. Yeah. Brackenridge, Pennsylvania. Um, some, you know, Similar situation, four firefighters died. Um, I don't know, think another, Pittston, Pennsylvania, there was a, a, another similar situation. Go back to the 23rd Street fire in New York where 12 guys died. Uh, they, knew right. were, they knew there was a basement, but they were on a terrazzo floor held up by wood structure. And the 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 basement of one building projected under the part of the ground floor of the other building. So, you know, the, not only was the fire in the basement, but it was in the basement of an adjoining building, but it was under their feet. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great, Chief. Uh, you know, uh, and like you said, the summary says, in, in you know, the value of the complete 360 is is the uh, is the big factor here. I remember doing a 360 in about three and a half feet of snow at that. A uh, big uh, potato barn fire out in the country. It was minus 37, and the the captain. I was a chief at the time, but a captain was running the call. And he said, "Okay, Paul. He says, really, I should get a 360 of this. We had operations going, people inside, everything. Really need a 360." Well, I thought I was going to die doing the 360 because it was pushing snow all the way around. 
But, you know, I did make it eventually. It took a while, and it's like, okay, this is what it looks like at the back. And there is a door back there if you want to go. Yeah. yeah. See, that's where you need the drone. Right, right. <laughs> Which a lot of little departments are getting drones almost faster than the urbans because they've yeah. gotten some or one or two motivated individuals who are into it, and uh, they're, they're, they're doing it, right? Yeah. I yeah. think the bigger departments always think like somebody's gonna get it. Somebody, yeah. somebody's gonna do the 360, and if something unusual is there, they will let me know. But that's a lot of assumption. Right? So yes. with a drone, you're on the safer side. But again, how fast is it there? Right? Would yeah. be would be ideal if you have a battalion chief. Every battalion rigs should have yeah, that's a what's, drone. That's what's easier. The small department is they can buy one and put it on the chief's vehicle. Where like Toronto has to buy fifteen of them to put it on every district chief's vehicle. If Toronto buys one, where do you put it? Who takes it? All that kind of stuff, right? I was talking to a chief from a small town somewhere in the U.S. Midwest last last year at FDIC. We were talking about drones, and he said he often shows up first all by himself, but he has a drone. So he says he does. He's he sets up command in front of the building and does a drone 360. <laughs> perfect, perfect. I like awesome. it. I like it. Ah, tech, yeah, when, music, when I was at the yeah, when I was at the Intershoots, they had a whole section just with drones. Oh yeah, yeah. And the robots. You know, I'm doing the exclamation marks again. The, the remote controlled whatever. So yeah. and, and it's fascinating because I always thought that if if you have a system where chiefs are usually a little bit older and not good with technology and they're struggling with the telestaff. Computers and the computer typing, and uh, you give them a drone, they're like, I don't want it. But then the tablet ones, I thought they were perfect because really yeah. all you had to do is open open that suitcase, push the on button, and this thing zips up, and you don't need courses, you don't need um, uh, registrations for these devices because they they stay at a certain height. So are you, are you trying to say even an old guy like me can make it work? Yes, yes, sir. <laughs> With all due respect, <laughs> do you, want, you want us to talk to your chief about getting you a drone? We we could do that. Like, that. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, chief, it's it's been wonderful having you on the show again. And uh, if you think of another incident that you'd really like to get out there, we are all ears. We'd love to have you uh, talk about whichever one you think. There's valuable lessons still. The thing with the older ones is it has to be lessons we can still use today, uh, yeah. like this one, right? But in, so if you think of any, uh, I, can, I can think of a whole bunch of them. I, you know, I mentioned Brackenridge, Pennsylvania. That's a that's a good one. Uh, the Meridian Bank Building is another yeah, good one. I want to do that one. There, are, uh, I have there are a whole bunch of them. So uh, perfect. Yeah, make I a mean, list. Jot oh, it down. we have to chief over for a table talk and just yeah, talk. yeah. If there's a, so so we do a bonus episode feature where we call it the tailboard talk, and yeah. we just talk about anything that might be of interest to firefighters. Assuming we're sitting on the back of the tailboard after a, a day or a call or having a coffee or whatever, and so we've talked about shows. We've talked about the New York the rope rescue incident they did uh, uh, last year. We talked about technology versus tradition, smoothbore nozzles and all that kind of automatic pump governors and all that kind of. We just did one of those. That's not even out yet. It's it's yeah. just in the editing phase. You join us on one of those. That'd be good. Sure. Sure. Anytime. Okay. Okay. Well, 
everybody. And any, uh, you know, thank you, everybody, the listeners. Uh, give us a star, a thumbs up. Thank for li- listening to us on the uh, Emergency Traffic Podcast. We appreciate your interest, and we hope that uh, you find these interesting and informative. Uh, last words to my uh, my guests here. Um, Dirk, do you want to go first? Oh, yeah. Again, uh, appreciate it. Thank you, Chief. Uh, it was a privilege and honor to uh, share the screen with you. <laughs> and for our listeners, uh, stay low and go. Yeah, like Dirk, like Dirk said, uh, it's nice to have the Chief back again, and hopefully we do more in the future. And always nice to learn from different perspectives. And and uh, it was a fun episode to go through, and, and uh, hopefully we can learn from it and our, our listeners can learn from it. And it can something in the back of your head might trigger if you ever experience this kind of thing. And and it was glad to be back. I missed a couple, so it's nice to get back on here. Chief, I'll leave the last word to you. By the way, if you ever get out west, let you know. Hey, I might even get a contract. Someone's talking to me about some down east uh, Quebec uh, uh, teaching. So if I do, yeah. I'll have to. If you ever get out west, let us know. Paul's got a real good credit card. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll be there. I'll be there soon. Uh, well, first, thanks. Yeah, thanks for the invitation. Uh, you know, I I I enjoy I enjoy talking about these things just because the information is so valuable. Everybody who's out there listening, uh, you know, just absorb as much as you can. You know, you <laughs> the the experience that's shared is uh, is extremely valuable because. You know, we we never get to see everything ourselves. So we've just got to, you know, we've got to take advantage of shared information. And I guess my mission is to share information as much as I can. So be out there, be safe, be careful, pay attention. <laughs>